Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. It is my great pleasure to be here with Kirill Avramov, Assistant Professor in the Department of Slavic and Eurasian Studies, as well as Co-Director of the Global Disinformation Lab and Non-Resident Fellow to the Intelligence Studies Project at the University of Texas, Austin. Welcome, Kirill. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure of being here, and thank you for having me. My goodness, I know, Kirill, you, I'm sure your email is kind of ringing off the hook, as we might say. Um, you must be very busy these days. We have been living, um, of course, there's the, the invasion that happened, but even before that, all of your important work with students and colleagues at the university and around the world in this post-truth world, as some have called it, um, Maybe even before we get to that, um, let me ask you what what drove you here? Like, where I know you got your PhD in political science from the University of Sofia, Bulgaria. You did a BA at Gustavus Adolfos College. Um, you've done work at University of Aberdeen, Central European University. What kind of brought your focus to this place of information, disinformation, weaponizing, post-truth, um, even before all of this was a thing? Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a very good question. First of all, um, as you were seeing in my CV, I consider myself a citizen of the world, if you will, although I'm a new Texas implant, you know, for the past five years, I've been uh, here at the University of Texas at Austin. Although this is not my first visit, uh, what brought me here initially uh, was a Fulbright uh, fellowship and uh, with the Department of Slavic and uh, Eurasian Studies. Um, and back then, um, I was working on a project which was called In Conspiracy We Trust. It's interestingly, that was the year 2015. And... Um, some people, you know, on both sides of the pond were thinking of this as a, a rather hobby project. Uh, but I had uh, the immense privilege to, um, to see certain things here at the University of Texas uh, as, as um, a great opportunity to work with. First of all, uh, I was given the chance to uh, interact and be part of the department by Professor uh, Mary Newberger, and uh, at that time, um, I benefited tremendously from the expertise of Professor Keith Leibers, who is one of the few authors in the field of conspiratorial, uh, or understanding the conspiratorial myth-making in post-Soviet Russia. Uh, he, had a, he has actually published, I believe, last year, uh, a really great book, uh, which is dedicated to it. Uh, so back then, think about 2014, you know, is the, you know, right after Crimea, 
um, 2015, you know, and things were not that much on the radar. Uh, however, my understanding, and I'll tell you, you know, how this, oh, you know, my interest, you know, like tie all in together. Then subsequently in 2018, I came as a postdoc to the Intelligence Studies Project under the great leadership of Professor Steve Slick, uh, with something unique. And you would say, well, what's the kind of, you know, connection between those two? And uh, my answer is, uh, it is my very long-standing interest uh, in non-Western political warfare in covert action uh, in its two iterations, kinetic and non-kinetic. Uh, by non-kinetic, we mean propaganda and information operations. And part of those operations, obviously, are the creation and craft conspiratorial narratives, uh, which are designed for uh, internal use of Russian-speaking world and the, what they call the near abroad. And part of it, which American public was also exposed to, uh, for external use, for English speakers, but uh, nowadays we see a spike actually, you know, in production with the hot war phase in the Ukraine in Arabic and in all kinds of languages, you know, um, coming from the central uh, outlets, which are actually elements of the Russian propaganda machine. They're not necessarily media in, in a strict sense as we would think here as, as media. Uh, they are elements of what they self-proclaimed, so kind of like the Ministry of, um, of Information Operations, if you will. Um, so going back to 2015, so um, I'm looking uh, at this time as really kind of the first my first contact with UT and uh, with some great people that we have here on campus that have been thinking systematically over over this uh, problem as to why all of a sudden, you know, we saw this spike of propaganda and uh, uh, how does it tie something that later on I pursued since 2018 with this integrated approach, which is connected to directly or indirectly to the Russian security and intelligence services. So how does it tie all together? Well, it ties because I had this, as I said, very long um, time interest uh, in several aspects of um, international relations and security studies, and mainly the, in the, the field of intel studies. Uh, it's a bit of a cliche in our field, uh, and I know a lot of people might not agree with me, uh, but we, quote often, you know, an author which says, look, um, if you look at the history of international relations and politics, or even the events that are unfolding today, you're seeing only the visible part. And this visible part, you know, is manifested into the executives, you know, meeting and having uh, talks and so on. But there is this invisible part, which is called covert action, which every country has. And it's also part of the mm, political maneuvering and part of the, and it takes part in the calculus of decision making. And every country, you know, is conducting uh, not only passive gathering of information about our countries in order to understand two things. One of them is the capabilities, but also most importantly, to try to understand the intent and therefore predict, you know, what comes next. Um, so that, uh, of course, leads, uh, this type of interest leads to uh, sort of closer scrutiny of the ways um, different governments and their what we call modus operandi operate uh, when they employ those kinetic and non-kinetic operations. 
So uh, as you see, this is kind of a long-lasting parallel uh, interest because um, in the past, uh, you know, my interest in political science always some, somehow was related to, uh, unfortunately, um, not so uh, positive effects of politics. I was interested in in um, corruption, in state capture. This is what my you know where I initially started. Uh, but this is a huge topic for Eastern Europe because there is um, this element uh, in the transition of those countries, uh, what I would say transition assisted by the former intelligence officers, which were uh, embedded all across, I mean, Putin himself, and I don't want to be cliche again, I was saying, oh yeah, he's KGB and so on. Uh, but in each and every country, the problem of illustration and the connection between corruption, organized crime and the intelligence services has been a huge factor of the development of those new democracies. So naturally, uh, from there, you know, when you pick up and you go forward, you know, as I came here, it's one thing, you know, with uh, in Intel studies, of course, you know, because it's heavily populated by historians and we political scientists are rarities uh rather than anything else for a very obvious reason uh because it takes years to declassify a certain type of documents in order to verify uh the the sort of the veracity of, of, of uh, certain types of covert action however um what is interesting is that um here my work is making me think you know based on historical precedents of what we do have uh as a modus operandi of uh, post-Soviet Russia, based on the traditions and then the satellite states, you know, very logically, how does that extend in post-Soviet times, so that is post, um, you know, 2000s? Uh, because uh, I firmly believe that uh, you will see certain fat dependency and long array effects. Uh, people and societies and countries do not change uh, that easily. There are deep imprints in their cultural, organizational, uh, behavioral approaches. And that informs uh, my work today when I uh, work with contemporary samples in the lab of uh, Russian disinformation and propaganda, be it at a uh, textual level or so on, or previous work that I have done uh, with the ISP under the auspices of ISP that is looking purely at the kinetic part of um, you know this um, outreach, let's call it this way, um, of the Russian Federation. Back, you know, in 2018, again, um, I don't want to sound immodest, but we were one of the few people, you know, with a small group of um, you know, people that were thinking alike, were uh, investigating the phenomenon of uh, privatization of force uh, and the emergence of the so-called mercenaries, you know, within the Russian world. So we were just, you know, very much looking at... Um, the private military and security companies uh, and how they related to phenomenon that back then was, you know, constantly uh, discussed as, as probably not viable and so on. And uh, so, as I have mentioned previously, the um, logic of uh, kinetic and non-kinetic operations are very, is often very closely intertwined. Um, sometimes, um, you would see that those go in parallel. Uh, sometimes you see uh, the propaganda kicking in, uh, covering certain operations, or 
uh, aiding them uh, as they're going along. And in order not to be abstract, uh, just think about uh, the very fact that now emerged very clearly in the public eye, but back then it was it was not so clear, especially outside of specialist circles. Uh, the very person that was uh, bankrolling and sponsoring the so-called IRA troll farms in St. Petersburg is the very same person uh, who acted as a proxy of the Russian MOD <clears throat> to bankroll uh, the Wagner Group. Uh, and this is a model, you know, uh, that is interesting in itself, you know, that we're investigating uh, a model of um, political um, phenomenon that occurs in post-Soviet Russia along the line of what they call the vertical of power, vertical of last in, in, in Russian, uh, where you do have privatization of foreign policy, when you do have privatization of um, elements of the propaganda uh, and so on. And honestly, as I've written back then in certain articles, um, you know, even for the wider public, uh, the problem for the observers, specifically from, you know, Western perspective is you don't know where uh, the state ends and where the private begins. Um, and this, of course, remember, uh, I was talking about corruption. <laughs> I was talking about incorporation of private interests, uh, uh, especially, you know, if you consider the history of post-Soviet Russia, you know, the wild 90s where, you know, the laws were very elastic, stretchy, and so on. And this is something, you know, that can be, you know, argued for other countries as well in their early transitions in Eastern Europe. Uh, that became a significant part of uh, this new landscape. Uh, and this, again, fast forward to uh, 2014-15. Remember I said uh, we were dealing, you know, initially I was interested in this very particular um, and very significant culturally, historically, sociologically, um, psychologically, uh, the iterations of uh, this Russian um uh, conspiratorial myth-making, if you will, uh, which features very heavily, by the way, uh, you know, even current propaganda, so it gives us a good basis. Uh, but it was seen as odd. Uh, from my perspective, however, nothing is odd, because my argument, even back then in 2015, was that Eastern Europe uh, has been, a for a very long time, has been used for, obviously, for historical purposes and its Cold War history and belonging to the other side of the, the Iron Curtain is a lab, test, early testing lab um, for all kinds of um, info operations, you know, mainly, you know, direct elites and non-elites, population control, and so on. So I, I would argue that some of us have elevated um, sensitivity towards the phenomenon. Uh, and we're in a relatively good position, not better than anyone else, just very sensitive, especially, you know, if you operate in multiple languages like I do and like my colleagues do, as to <clears throat> what uh, sometimes this Orwellian doublespeak would, would mean and to whom it is directed. So, um, again, from my perspective, I'm, I, you know, I would, of course, you know, sound ridiculous if I said everything is connected, uh, but I definitely... Uh, see what we call method in the madness um and uh, a lot of people might be uh, baffled you know by by what uh, the current government i also want to make very clear you know that we always separate uh russian and russian people 
you know, from its current form of government, uh, because unfortunately, a lot of people fall into the trap that's been set uh, forth previously, what we call the Russophobia, regardless of what you do. Actually, we admire, uh, you know, Russian culture, literature, all scientific uh, achievements. After all, we are a center of Russian Eastern European studies at UT. Uh, and we think, uh, you know, the politics is simply not representative necessarily of, of what Russian people uh, think, feel, and so on. Uh, it is just a face of autocratic, very repressive regime, uh, which has uh, different instrumentation at its, its disposal. Uh, and in its what we call near peer competition is using it in different iterations, uh, be it in uh, what we what is known in our uh, narrow circles as the gray zone. So this is the phase that is neither peace or world war that was up to February this year. Uh, and uh, all of those operations, you know, they stand on different fronts. Remember, I was telling you about the spectrum. And this is the spectrum of covert action. So on one end, you would have agents of influence, you would have uh, information operations, you would have the propaganda, you would have um, constant strategic messaging, and all the way down to use of force and targeted killings when necessary. And those are... Well, um, all part of, uh, you know, a similar phenomenon that is uh, worth investigating and understanding uh, from two perspectives. One, you know, remember when I said it's hard always in Intel studies because you need documents to be declassified. And there was a brief window uh, in the past where you had direct access to Russian archives, not anymore, uh, Soviet uh, archives. Uh, so, however, we're still lucky that other uh, former communist states had their uh, archives uh, open. So, um, you know, so when I mean uh, archives, not only the general archives, but specifically the ones that are from their former security services, uh, whatever the, the classified. So, you have a pretty good picture uh, of the modus operandi, the relationships, and the invisible part of politics. Uh, and, you know, description of major events. So in order to compare those, <clears throat> you need to follow, uh, you know, the, the current events and iterations of those kinetic and non-kinetic. And remember now I was talking about the novelties versus the tradition <clears throat> in propaganda, but also in the use of, of force. So it's all from this uh, spectrum. Uh, so one of the main questions which we're interested in is, you know, how does evolutionary um, change, you know, uh, takes over time in their approach. Um, so is it similar? Is it because the pressure when it's put on them, do they change methods and tactics? What has changed and in what ways? Because only then you can create, in my opinion, sound policy recommendations. Um, do we detect any patterns um, and how do they evolve? all over time. Uh, so this is kind of the bulk of the interest that we have, unfortunately, just as the <laughs> uh, perennial Chinese proverb goes, you know, we'll, we're, we're cursed to live in interesting times. And uh, this is how we started our conversation. Uh, there is, the, again, as I, we talked uh, with you previously, um, it is the, on one end, it's it's kind of like the purely analytical side where we have to be dispassionate and uh, you know, not take sides. But as I've told you, we do have multiple Ukrainian-American students, people that live close by in the region, 
Um, and when you meet them daily on campus, uh, and of course, you know, what we follow constantly is an information streaming that's uh, coming from Ukraine, from Russia itself, from neighboring countries. Um, I mean, look, you know, the refugee flows, the tragedy, the destruction, and so on. It gets you after a while. Um, so, yes, we do have a passion, and the passion is that um, if we can help even, you know, one person, you know, then, you know, in the practical world, uh, then, you know, it's not only a purely academic exercise that it's for the, you know, art for the sake of art. Uh, this is very important, you know, because it's our main mission here at UT to advance the state of art and understanding, but there is the human side as well. Well, let me ask you a couple of follow-ups, um, really fascinating and very important work. Um, two questions. Um, one, I know that the Global Disinformation Lab is an interdisciplinary collaborative academic space. And I wonder what you've been learning from your colleagues and from your own work in terms of susceptibility, cognitive uh, behavioral susceptibility, habits, patterns. You mentioned cultural, um, regional behaviors, patterns. But I'm just wondering, what is it about us as human beings that wants to, we want to believe uh, misinformation seems to grab hold and root very seemingly very easily. Yes. So, well, this is uh, you're asking kind of the million dollar question. You know that uh, absolutely. First of all, Gido is a a great experiment. Uh, and I'm very grateful to the leadership of our college, uh, our department, and everyone who's involved from different departments that are joining us as we speak uh, for inputs that are not necessarily always connected. I mean, traditionally, you'd find such labs mainly in data science or engineering. Uh, our idea was actually to uh, turn and change the optics um, to show that a uh, a lot of our students, undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate uh, from very different fields can have a platform, which is uh, actually the College of Liberal Arts, where they can utilize their linguistic uh, skills, their uh, uh, you know subjects uh, to become subject matter experts in the fields that they've been taught at, history, sociology, literature, and to have a practical implications uh, to work on what we call um, live projects in our <laughs> internal uh, parlance and those are actually uh, projects that uh, we have um, doing in collaboration with external partners um, which we're uh, very proud of those accomplishments and we have the chance you know to, uh, people to work not only on abstract level but actually work on very practical level and some of the work is visible on our web page uh, and it's been acknowledged <clears throat> um, all the way to the office of ODNI. and i um so what what we learn you know from those daily interactions you know if i can stay away from the technical descriptions but rather you know share my impressions well first of all uh remember i was talking about how much the interest and um, the chances of people buying into conspiratorial thinking. Unfortunately, we've seen iterations in, internationally 
uh, especially I would argue, you know, with the peak of populism um, for a very um, specific reason, and that is uh, conspiracy theories in themselves are manifestation of um, sort of populist theory of power because they usually, you know, the narrative goes about the non-corrupted uh, people and the corrupted elite <clears throat> and, you know, the, the nefarious plots. So why do we buy into disinformation uh, and so on? One explanation is that usually you'd see disinformation um, peaking uh, and conspiratorial explanations as to what is going on around in times of monumental shifts, economic, political, times of conflict. Um, <clears throat> something major is happening around us and people need to locate um, the explanation, especially in processes which are complex and transparent uh, and not necessarily could be pinpointed. Think about globalization, for instance. Um, think about um, various uh, kind of uh, monumental construction buildings such as European Union or uh, foundational events that surround um, conflicts or perceived uh, conflicts uh, and so on. So people want to have a clear answer uh, and it has to do with uh, a this sense of loss of agency. Uh, it also is the understanding or rather the horror that nobody might be in control as we have been imagined uh, necessarily. So we need um, a coherent explanation, which leads me to the second part. Um, human beings, our brains, uh, more or less uh, are hardwired to seek patterns. We'd love to make patterns out of the chaos. Uh, and sometimes we're inclined to see patterns even when there are none. Uh, or we try to overlay or overlap, you know, non-related non events uh, where we can have a coherent uh, explanation, again, uh, connected to our anxieties, to, you know, the sense of control, the sense of um, danger, um, uncertainty mainly, uh, where we think that uh, either us or by delegation is of figures of of power that we trust, you know, can control those and predict, um, you know, therefore, you know, have more predictable future, reduce the uncertainty. Uh, it is also, you know, from a narrative point of view, because there are so many entry points to, to this problem, uh, it is easy to, easier. I mean, some of the studies, you know, that have done, you know, estimations as to the speed of traveling of false information versus fruitful information, uh, as the one that became very notorious in the past several years, uh, you know that this information is estimated, you know, like on platforms that it travels more or less, you know, six times faster than factual information. The question is why? Well, one of the explanation is that just as like every good story, <laughs> it satisfies our need, you know, it's interesting, it's suspenseful, uh, it is contains the element of surprise. Uh, it's just, you know, has all of those elements of the stories that will make you watch the fabulous film or pick up uh, a good story, fictional story. Uh, so uh, having said that, you know, truth might be hard, mundane, 
you know, not necessarily, you know, as straightforward as we want to see it in, in categories, you know, like very well defined in terms of colors, you know, so we can put those neatly into boxes. And again, think about what I was talking about, control anxiety and also uh, the sense of our own significance. Uh, this is a scary thought, right? You know, I mean, we're just um, small grains of sand in this cosmos. So we want to know, you know, uh, to those, you know, answers to those, you know, key philosophical questions as to why are we here? You know, what's the purpose and so on. And some of this um, narration, you know, and meta narratives that occur in, in this disinformation actually do provide, you know, whether in the form of national myths or simply explanations, you know, which fit very well. Now, this, of course, is an excellent way for the politicians and the uh, unscrupulous people to manipulate uh, this type of instrumentation. And it's been ever since Roman times with us. You know, propaganda has very different iterations, you know, from coins and statues for architecture, all the way to words and altered words and images, deep fakes today. Um, so we do, you know, we, 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 we sometimes unfortunately crave it. Now, different, you know, uh, psychological types and different people with uh, different political inclinations would consume different types of stories, but no one's really immune. Uh, what we have seen is that, you know, ever since Hofstadter, you know, was thinking about, you know, conspiratorial thinking as a marginal phenomenon that just affects one small fraction, I would say that conspiracy has gone more and more mainstream, uh, be it through political rhetoric, be it through propaganda, or even if you think about uh, popular culture. And this is very similar processes on the both sides of the pond, uh, Russian culture as well. Uh, you do have um, you know, production of, you know, back in the 80s, you know, like from the X-Files and so on. Uh, and previously, you know, all the way back to the Red Skater, you know, there are very logical <clears throat> lag effects which happen, you know, body snatchers, loss of autonomy, and so on. So, I mean, imagination works. Um, having said that, um, it is really hard, however, when you enter the post-truth world uh, to be in the same page, if you will, and have a conversation uh, which is coherent uh, with people that do not recognize you know, factual recognition or refuse to uh, recognize factual information. Uh, so it takes very different approaches, uh, and they're not necessarily, you know, because everyone's like, oh, yeah, fact-checking and so on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but uh, if you want to engage people, you know, into a conversation about the factuality and the eventual consequences, because... Propaganda can have horrific consequences, right? You know, I mean, it can lead to kinetic real-world results. We don't need proof of that. We've seen it all around. And currently, what we see in the in the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine, you know, it's just mind-boggling, especially if you look at how uh, intensively the Russian population is bombarded, you know, uh, in order to perform what is known as rally around the flag effect. Uh, and be in a state of constant mobilization. So, and elsewhere as well, you know, like in the world, we've seen this recently. Uh, so if, if, if you uh, think about how do you approach people like that, right? I mean, there are classical approaches of interventions, which is, you know, not what we do right now, but 
it's known to science, you know, um, whether it's going to be debunking, whether it's going to be engaging, whether it's going to be ridicule uh, or empathy. And instinctively, I would say that not only instinctively, but, you know, every time I would pick empathy and understanding as opposed to polarization, because we're seeing, you know, that, you know, the kind of like the falling apart of the public discourse is precisely that you do have um, groups of people that do not talk uh, to each other whatsoever. They, you know, they might live in the same physical space, but they don't share the same public discourse. Uh, and this is precisely the golden opportunity for, let's say, hostile operators, state and non-state, you know, to intervene, to interject and poison, you know, the conversation, the well, be it through techniques that we investigate, such as doubt, uh, such as uh, specific rhetorical approaches uh, as to how to target and then later on micro-target specific groups of people. Uh, but, um, yeah. It's, um, you know, the future of propaganda, you know, more or less is tied to micro-targeting and uh, kind of the psychological traits of people. And, yeah, um, Cambridge Analytical Science might have been bad, uh, a lot of criticism and so on, but it gives you a kind of a hint and flavor of the directions where we're going in the future. Don't forget that uh, with the advanced machine learning, and the ability to produce at an insignificant cost text, which is produced by non-human, uh, and uh, altered images uh, and sounds, that can have, you know, like we, I think a lot of people have talked to, the, certainly in our university, you know, Professor Bobby Chesney and a number of other people associated with lawfare have been talking about the, the profound consequences of what deepfakes can have and so on. Uh, for um, the real-life effects that we're having. So, very long mm -hmm. route to tell you <laughs> that uh, there, are, you know, there are multiple factors that makes us very susceptible. Uh, some of them are very traditional, as you know, what Cass Sunstein and his colleagues were talking about the rumors and rumor cascades, and you know, been investigated all the way back to Alford since uh, World War II. Uh, and some of it is the new technology, you know, that is uh, adding to the element of deception. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, <clears throat> the presentation of truth um, or the reconstruction of of untruth as truth. Let me ask you, uh, just as we kind of begin to wind this down, you published, co-authored co a piece on weaponized sexuality and gender-based narratives in contemporary Russian and pro-Russian disinformation. And of course, that had me thinking, um, you mentioned just now as we were talking about pop culture, and I thought about Pussy Riot um, in particular, but um, maybe you could speak to that or, or other elements um, where you see this kind of weaponizing happening. Um, and then finally, maybe we can end with kind of a, um, you know, I, I, I did watch the Alexei Navalny, you know, documentary, and I see and saw that he had a team that was using social media platforms to push back, actually, at the disinformation, um, you know, industrial complex, if you will. So, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about both and, and yeah. Try to make it short as I've been very ver verbose, I suppose. But um, yes, uh, I believe that one 
particular feature is very interesting, and uh, this is why uh, we worked uh, and we continue working on looking at this very specific angle. Uh, and it is tied to the promotion of so-called traditional values uh, by the current uh, leadership, the Russian Federation, part of the information offensive. Uh, the reason why we looked at it is that uh, when we were collecting data and we we're making typology of some of the cases uh, that were known as active operations um, that were targeting non-Russian speakers. And, uh, you know, you can think of the case of the little Lisa that, uh, for instance, and, you know, more people might be familiar or that is the reported um non-existent actually rape of a teenage girl of Russian uh, descent uh, in Germany by back then you can imagine fill in the blanks you know who has done this you know there will be Muslim immigrant men uh, and of course the idea was to drive a, a wedge and put a pressure and it did work you know because you had all the way up to Angela Merkel back then as a chancellor you know weighing in into this controversy but the idea is that um, it has the potential you know, to uh, just as, because it's connected to some of our basic feelings, fear, disgust, and uh, so on, um, it has the potential uh, to make certain type of disinformation more potent and harmful than others. Also, it carries a symbolic value. Uh, it more or less, you know, is creating a map for people to orient themselves is what exactly what Russian propaganda currently is trying to explain. And this is what they call the eschatological even battle of good and evil. You know, you have two sides. You can't, you can't stay um, on uh, uh, just on the fence or just observing. Uh, you have to take, uh, you have to partake and choose sides because this is kind of a historical event. And of course it has a, you know, so many historical references about the, the Moors, about the traditional family, about the morale, about the role of the Orthodox Church, uh, about the decadence and the times and so on. So it is really fascinating as, as it, how it is used. And also it, it's a multi-purpose instrument, unfortunately. It's not only about targeting people outside, but actually aids the repression of people uh, uh, back in the Russian Federation, you know, because of their sexual orientation. And just think about the worst, you know, iteration that will be uh, people like Kadyrov and, uh, you know, his uh, so-called quote-unquote gay purges, you know, which were horrific. Uh, so this is why we think, you know, this is one of the very significant um, themes that occur. And if it's very well masked, you know, if you look at its structural or content or any other, you know, we were, you know, by techniques that we're analyzing it and uh, it belongs to that uh, kind of family of approach. Uh, it is used because unfortunately it works. Uh, so don't be surprised if you read yet another story about drunken American soldiers on deployment, you know, harassing, I don't know, Baltic women or something like this. You know, I mean, most of them, what we have discovered, you know, with my co-author, actually they're built on a, template basis so people can simply you know the proxies can just use them in the different location by just exchanging you know the characters and so on so this is very kind of handy you know coming from narrative theory so you can weaponize relatively easy uh this type of um approach uh and to your last question um think about that um 
the case with Navalny, which I want to remind is what our colleagues, you know, and friends in Bellingcat, you know, have been pointing out for such a long time. You know, I mean, these are people we had even Mr. Karamurza here as a guest uh, in the UK, and he went back to Russia, he got imprisoned. Uh, and, you know, almost immediately upon return, precisely because, you know, of the idea that he's sharing, uh, you know, false information, denigration of the Russian armed forces. Uh, but, you know, all of these people, first of all, they've been, you know, targets for assassination attempts, poisonings, uh, and not once. Uh, they do present a tangible alternative uh, you know, and I know that, you know, immediately, you know, the Russian propaganda jumps into it and says like, oh, about their popularity, and, you know, moral values and so on. But the very fact that you take so much uh, time, you know, and resource, you know, uh, state resource to eliminate these people, to um, take them off the political scene, to remove uh, an option. For, for for the people, you know, to to see a different uh, face, route, an alternative for this country uh, tells us a lot. And it tells us also a lot about the skill of what this new generation uses in their communication uh, with uh, the electorate, you know, with the people. And look no further. Uh, if you look at the, you know, the documentaries that they have produced about the corruption, so there, here we go, another full circle since the beginning of our conversation of, uh, uh, of uh, Putin and his inner circle about the abuses of power, about uh, the democratic deficits, about this alternative reality you know, of uh, so-called sovereignty. Um, those are all elements as to why these people become so undesirable. Uh, and of course, you know, it's a huge irritant to the Russian state, and I would say other authoritarian countries, you know, China as well, you know, you take strong digital measures, you know, to stifle uh, any type of meaningful uh, alternative communication, because people sooner or later start asking the question, why? <laughs> as to why are we doing this, you know, um, uh, why, you know, certain things, you know, should not be, you know, uh, I mean, there is a cognitive dissonance. And again, um, you know, at the end of our conversation, I, I always um, like to remind, you know, our, our students and our colleagues, uh, you know, that we looked at those, uh, you know, subjects that we deal with in, in two particular ways, right? One of them is, uh, what Nate Silver uh, used to used to call you know, picking the signal from the noise. Uh, first of all, you know to discern what's the signal, what's the noise. You know because sometimes you'll see the propaganda would just create a lot of disinformation, a lot of noise in order to confuse people and to drive them into inaction or suppress their actions or so on, depending on the objective. Uh, but then uh, all of us have system one and system two thinking. You know, fast and slow, very Kahnemanian. So. Most of it are attacks on our emotional way of how we process uh, what's going around us. Uh, deep systematic thinking uh, requires time and it's cultivated. And uh, this is one of the great missions, I believe, of UT Austin, which makes it a fantastic place to work. Uh, because we have the opportunity to approach it from very, very different angles, think systematically, and try to see uh, what are the most harmful effects and hopefully propose solutions to deal with them. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we need deeply informed and yet kind of simple, maybe simply laid out steps as consumers for being able to bring in that slowness that you're talking about to assess and evaluate before the kind of the reflex emotion, you know, sets in, um, Mm -hmm. is, you know, I, I've watched agents of chaos, the, of course, Navalny documentary, Putin's road to war. Is there, is there anything as we close this, um, Kirill, that you would recommend either reading or watching that might continue to provide useful um, depth of insight into, you know, weaponizing of misinformation, information, um, it, it, you know, these patterns you just so beautifully laid out and that have been used in extremely destructive ways. Well, um, as you pointed out, uh, some of those, you know, cover pretty well, you know, the mindset. Uh, but I would recommend um, if um, our listeners have a chance for auditorium to look at the patterns of past operations, uh, specifically Operation Infection. Um, so there were uh, very good sort of uh, pieces uh, done by, I believe, New York Times, uh, you know, short videos that were outlining so-called active measures, uh, operations of the Russian and Soviet back then, intelligence uh, connected to the uh, HIV virus, uh, because that, you know, this type of well-documented operations, because they were joint venture between uh, KGB, Stasi, uh, STB, the Czech, uh, Czechoslovak back then, intelligence, Bulgarian intelligence, uh, those active measures and some of the documents, you know, produced here by the committee uh, that was dealing with active measures uh, is a shorthand to understand how those operations work. Uh, so operation infection, uh, as I said, uh, and any type of videos would be, you know, connected uh, and kind of uh, recap uh, would be a good reference point as to why um, those type of uh, very powerful um instruments of disinformation work uh, and most likely will continue to work uh, as, you know, we have a lot. Wow. Kirill Avramov, thank you so much for taking the time to go take us on this very important journey of yours and the work that you're doing to provide depth of knowledge plus actual countermeasure policy making based on this important research you're doing in a post-truth world. Thank you, Kirill. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you very much. It was a wonderful conversation. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.